So let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. should be up on the screen for you to follow along. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I'm going to ask our lead pastor, Billy Glosson, come up and pray for him and us as we sit under the word today. Mm. Lord, I'm so thankful for this opportunity to get together on a Sunday afternoon and, and sit under your word and praise you and just... Um, fellowship with brothers and sisters, take communion, and God, we're just so blessed to have this time together. Um, I pray for Billy this this afternoon as he preaches. I pray that you would give him wisdom, discernment, um, open our eyes, open our hearts to what you would have us hear in your word. Challenge us, encourage us where it is needed, and in all things, Lord, I pray that we would remember the gospel and that its truths would just continue to penetrate our hearts and our souls this afternoon and into the week. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. There's a lot that I've loved um, about moving back to North Carolina, um, but perhaps my biggest vice is uh, is Berkmont. So maybe you guys don't know this, but in a row on Berkmont there is Bojangles, Chick Fil A, and Cookout. Right? It's just like this amazing trifecta of glory. You know, be still, my clogged arteries. Here's the deal. None of those restaurants were in Missouri. We got a Chick-fil-A not too long before uh, we ended up moving here. But, but beyond that, there was no Bojangles, right? Which, you know, sometimes you got to want to need to get a Hava. And then there's also no cookout, which has like a billion flavors for your milkshake. So for me, that's something I love. Now, Hannah fights against my desire for fast food, except for Chick-fil-A, because even she can't say no to the Lord's chicken, because it's delicious. No, but seriously, Hannah has fought to keep me healthy. And so this is something that she's always constantly encouraging me to do. You know, hey, are you walking? Are you eating? What are you, like, what are you working on? So a few years ago, we did Whole30, um, which if you don't know what that is, it means no dairy, no grains, not even quinoa, right? Not even like the, the you know, hippie good for you grains. No legumes, which is beans. I didn't know that either. No alcohol, no sugar. Basically, no joy for 30 days. That's what that means. Um, and so I thought for sure when Hannah proposed this that the thing I was going to miss the absolute most 
was going to be gluten, right? I thought I was going to just pine after bread every day. Wrong. Believe it or not, I was completely okay without bread. It was dairy. Dairy was the thing that I could not handle. I missed it so much. I miss cheese like the desert misses rain. I just wanted it. Like there were times that I would just like drive by and like see, you know, like a coffee shop and they had, you know, their half and half. And I was like, you know, I just, I never really want half and half, but I wonder if it'd be good in my coffee. It was awful, right? But the deal is Hannah wanted me to last. She still does. That's why she asks me to take a one a day. That's why she puts kale in smoothies, right? She wants me to last for the long haul. And that's what Paul wants for the body of Christ as well. He wants a body that is healthy, a body that's going to last for the long haul. So Paul, he's been writing this letter to the churches in and around Ephesus. He's encouraging these young church plants to be healthy churches that endure. So the question then for us is, what is a healthy church? I think many of us have seen some pretty unhealthy churches. We've seen unhealthy church members. But what does it look like for a church to be, again, not perfect, but healthy? I think Paul gives us here a few distinguishing marks that I want to look at about what it means to be a healthy church. The first thing we see is this. A healthy church is united. A healthy church is united. Looking at the first six verses. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, again, we have to remember the way Ephesians has been laid out. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are this epic gospel reminder. Remember the gospel. Remember what God has done for you. It's setting things up. Now Paul is finally transitioning here in chapter 4 to the imperatives, to the things that we're supposed to be doing. Paul's finally getting to what does it look like now to live a life that's shaped by the gospel. We have to realize that there is no, again, sharp divide in our lives between the sacred and the secular. I want to start there because I think when we talk about this idea of a gospel-centered life, we think that we have to have some kind of pious attitude and try and strive for the real Christian life, right? Maybe some people think that the real Christians, the really mature ones, they're the ones who are pursuing full-time ministry. But me, doing whatever I do for a living, whether that's flipping burgers, hanging drywall, painting, if that's designing things for websites, whatever that may be that you do, all of that can be done to the glory of God. Our whole lives are to be lived in the light of the gospel. Paul gets to this idea that we are called. Every single one of us, every person in here is called to follow Jesus and is called to be a minister of his gospel. Our whole lives are to be lived in the light of the gospel. That's why we named the church Coram Deo. It, it communicates this idea. During the Reformation, that was what, if you ask Luther, what does it mean to be a Christian? He would say, Coram Deo. It means that the whole of my life, from sunup to sundown, is lived before the face of God in his presence, so that whatever we do, Jesus Christ is Lord. And as believers, we're walking in step with him under his lordship. So we get to this idea of calling. And what it does is it goes back to the very beginning of Ephesians. God has called us to himself 
by his grace. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. And now you and I are to live worthy of this privileged calling. And Paul says this calling is for every single Christian. Again, this is not just for the professionals. This is not just for the pastors. This is not just for the elite Christian. This is for all of us, every single one of us. To be a Christian is to be a little Christ. There's nothing more noble. There's nothing greater than this. Remember who you are as you live this life. And Paul illustrates what a worthy life looks like in his own situation. Again, we keep coming back to this idea. He is a prisoner for the Lord. That's how he starts chapter four. He does not consider himself a prisoner of Rome, but rather a prisoner of Christ. He surrendered his life to the Lordship of Jesus and it's taken him to prison. And while you may not be sent to prison for obeying Jesus, you and I as redeemed believers were called to sacrificial obedience. And this common call unites us. Let's recognize again, where does this call come from? It's a divine nature. God called us. God called us. And we share a common experience of his grace. We're united in this calling. This calling flows into how we live. And we see it in a couple different ways. The first is this, that we're united by living Christ-like lives. Paul explains what it looks like to, to walk worthy of this call. In short, it looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus. Paul mentions the following character qualities that we need to pursue as Christians. This is what he says in verses two and three. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. No one exemplified these virtues better than Jesus, right? Jesus is the supreme example of each of these qualities. Think of his humility, Think about his gentleness. I mean, Jesus said, come to me because I am gentle. His patience, it's unparalleled. As for love, Jesus demonstrated it in manifold ways, most vividly at the cross. And as for being eager to maintain peace, well, Jesus was the peacemaker. So the more we look like Jesus individually, the more we live like him relationally, the more united we become. So consider first humility. Humility. Paul holds up humility through his letters as an essential characteristic of believers. And he also speaks of humility in relationship to unity. These two go hand in hand, humility to unity. For unity to exist, humble, selfless people must be living for the good of others. We live in a day, much like the Ephesians did, where humility is not a virtue. The opposite of humility is self-exaltation. Our culture says that, right? Exalt yourself, pamper yourself, think about yourself first, treat yourself, right? That's the idea. That's the world we live in. And that's the problem. You and I, often, we only think of ourselves. Pride means being filled with self. Conversely, humi humility is being filled not with ourself, but with God and his presence. Paul describes humility in Philippians 2. It's this epic passage that talks about the humility of Jesus within the context of considering others, he says, more important than ourselves and not being conceited, not having rivalries. Tim Keller puts it beautifully. He says it this way. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. That's what humility that is shaped by the gospel looks like. We pursue humility. We start there, but we're not only humble, 
we're also supposed to be gentle. We're supposed to have gentleness. Now, this doesn't mean timidity. It, it often involves being mild-spirited or self-controlled. Right? Moses was described as the meekest man on the face of the earth. But he was this dynamic leader who challenged the power of the throne of Egypt. He, he was strengthened to stand under God's control, albeit imper- imperfectly, right? He, he hit the rock and he did some things he shouldn't have done. But this idea of gentleness, it's something that I think we often will read, especially men, and think, eh, I don't want to do that. But y'all, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. And it's the way that we care for each other. So are we gentle? Are we like Jesus in this? Or are we a hammer? Have you ever said, look, I'm just being honest, right? You know what I'm talking about? You're being really rude, crass. You're just talking, look, I'm just being honest, all right? Yeah, you can be honest and you can also be a jerk, right? That's not gentle. That's not loving. I think about it this way. Yesterday, Hannah uh, had gone off to the grocery store to buy groceries, left me at home, and we're watching Disney movies because every self-respecting American now has Disney Plus and is filling their homes with all kinds of classics. That's what we were doing. And uh, our kid comes up to me and her hand is bleeding. I don't know why. Children hurt themselves constantly. And you're like, how did you, you were, you were on the couch. What did you do? And she asks me to put a Band-Aid on it. And so I, again, put a Band-Aid on it. Now I could be like, now let me just, you know, grab your hand, hold it still, slam the Band-Aid on. No, that's not how we should do it. I very gently took the Band-Aid. I kissed her forehead and told her that I'm sorry she hurt herself and put the Band-Aid on. Gentleness does not mean that we have to be this kind of weird, squandered away, timid person, afraid to ever confront people. That's not what gentleness is. So we're united, right? We look like Jesus with humility, gentleness, and everybody get ready for this one, patience. Uh, Patience. How are you doing with this virtue, right? Uh, I mean, I think for some of us, the microwave is too slow, right? Maybe your prayer is, Lord God, please give me patience and, and also please hurry, right? Is that your prayer? Because for us, I think a lack of patience really displays a lack of humility and a lack of love. Paul's famous statement in Corinthians on love, love is what? It's patient. It's patient. It endures. To have patient love, we must endure. We must endure annoyances and challenges over long periods of time. Last week, again, speaking of our our daughter, we went to a thrift store and me trying to teach the value of a dollar, I told her she had X amount of dollars to spend. It was only five. We were going to a bunch of stores, right? So I wanted to stretch it. Once you spend all of that, it's gone, okay? And so Little did I know how horrible this would turn against me because I'm thinking she's six, you know, she's going to want to like find some kind of princess dress or something. Nope, she found what every three-year-old would want, which is this piano that you bang on and makes tons of noise. You know, like the little kid ones where it's only three notes? She really wanted it and it was only a dollar. So guess what she got? And guess what she proceeded to do the entire car ride the rest of the way? Ding, 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 the whole time to the point where at one point she said, am I getting on y'all's nerves? And we were like, no, it's great. It was really, really, really annoying right? It was, but we love her and we enjoyed her having so much joy. So the question then for us is, how do we cultivate patience? Well, I think the way that we do that is, be, is by relying on the Spirit, by meditating on the patience that Christ has shown us. I think over and over again and again, anytime we have to endure with someone, anytime that someone, that, it's that, maybe that annoying coworker, maybe it is your kids, maybe it's something else, we're constantly reminded of how long has God bared with us? How long has he endured with us, 
right? Meditate on that. Remember the patience that God has shown you. Here's the deal. It's easy to learn facts, but it is difficult to be patient with people. It is. Accepting one another in love, right? That's the next thing. We talk about patience and then we transition to love. Accepting one another in love. And this means to put up with each other in love. In his letters, Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. That's the only way a marriage works. I mean, ask my wife, Hannah, if I had to put up with me, one of us would have to die. But my wife puts up with me all the time, right? I don't know how, but that's the way a relationship in the body of Christ works. So we continue to love each other, diligently keeping unity. That's the next thing we see, diligently keeping unity. Here's the deal. Unity in the church is active, not passive. We should be zealous, each of us, to maintain unity. Notice, here's the deal. We do not work to create unity, but to keep unity. Did you catch that in the text? We don't create it, we keep it. God unites us and we are to seek to maintain unity by the help of the Holy Spirit. In order to pursue these qualities, we must be willing to renounce the opposite of each of them. So for humility, we must renounce self-centeredness so that we might walk in humility. We must renounce harshness in order to walk with gentleness. We must renounce the tyranny of our own agenda in order to walk with patience. We must renounce idealistic expectations in order to walk in enduring love. I'm gonna say that one again, because that's a big deal. We must renounce idealistic expectations in order to walk in enduring love. All of us have expectations. Many of us don't know what they are until they're not met. And then we are deeply bummed. We must renounce indifference and passivity in order to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Listen, the church is unified. It's, it, God is glorified when we live with Christ-like hearts, attitudes, and conduct. So we're united as we live like Christ, but we're also united by our gospel confession. Paul cites what was probably an early, uh, early Christian creed, right? We get into chapter four and we get to right about verse five and we start getting these one statements. There are seven one statements to emphasize this oneness that we share as Jesus's church. And it's important to note that, the, that in Ephesians four, it's not teaching unity at any cost. It's unity in Jesus. There's a lot of churches that say, man, we don't really want to be, you know, we don't want any trouble, so we're going to just sweep things under the rug. We're just going to put on happy faces. We know that person's sleeping with that person. We know this person isn't even trying. We know that there's all kinds of, this guy lied on his taxes. But as long as everybody's happy, we're gravy. That's not unity. That's not unity, at least not biblically. It's unity in Jesus. Consider these statements. One body. We share a common existence in Jesus' church. We all have diverse backgrounds and giftings, but we are united as one, one spirit. We share a common origin in the faith and the Holy Spirit's work. The spirit is the one who creates unity and empowers us to maintain it. One hope. We share a common hope in Jesus. Formerly, we were without hope until we were called to Jesus. Now we have hope and we must live in a manner worthy of our calling. One Lord. Believers confess and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. When the early Christians said Jesus is Lord, what they were actually saying is Caesar is not Lord. 
When Jewish Christians said this, they were boldly identifying Jesus with the God of the Hebrew scriptures. So this is not some kind of empty, creedal affirmation for early believers. This confession could cause people to lose their heads. It could. One faith. Again, this creed reminds us that we embrace the essential truths together. For faith here seems to refer to the body of truth we believe. One baptism. We share a common experience of being spiritually baptized into Jesus. We are united with him. The act of baptism into water, what it does is it pictures this reality. This ordinance may be in view here. One God and Father. So we are his adopted children. We share the same dad. We share the same father. He's the God over all. He's the father of all his children, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their background. Now we're one big adopted family. And notice here, the Trinity woven throughout this creed. The triune God not only creates the unity we have as believers, but also serves as the ultimate picture of what our unity should look like. Jesus himself prayed for unity, reflecting on his relationship with the Father. This is what he says in John 17. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. A healthy church is characterized by such unity. It is a massive, incredible testimony to the watching world when the church is unified in Christ. So we start here. A healthy church is marked by our unity, but we see second, a healthy church is diverse in its gifting. A healthy church is diverse in its gifting. Look at verses 7 through 12. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Here's something that I want to just put out there, and I think we need to kind of repeat over and over again and again, unity does not mean sameness. Unity does not mean sameness. That's why we see, again, a beautiful, brilliant mosaic displayed when we see people from different ethnicities, backgrounds, different giftings coming together under the banner of Christ. Our diverse roles, our abilities, what they do is they enrich and bless the church. In these verses, Paul is showing us how the church, with all of its glorious diversity, functions in a healthy way. And specifically, now he focuses on this idea that we have diverse gifts. Paul provides one of the key passages on understanding spiritual gifts in the New Testament. He says every believer has received a gift, or specifically a grace. Now this is not saving grace, but ministry grace. It is grace to serve and build up the body. In verse 8, Paul said grace was given that he might preach to the Gentiles. Of chapter 3, he says this. Here, he says grace is given to every believer to do ministry. So that means each and every single one of us has been given a gift of grace to do ministry. I love this because there are so many people who hear sermons and they think, well, not me, right? Because I can't preach. I can't teach. I can't lead whatever, right? I can't lead a small group. I can't do anything. That's not me, I would say, consider deeply what scripture says because it says that you have been given a gift. 
And perhaps it's not maybe these gifts that we elevate too much. Let's keep looking here. Paul, uh, he highlights Christ's generosity and his authority. Right? Jesus died, rose, and ascended into heaven as the victorious king with all authority. And he gave gifts to his people displaying extravagant generosity. And here's another example of how Jesus is portrayed as a giver. So in turn, we now, being like Jesus, are to be givers. We are to be generous with the gifts and resources that we've received. These gifts are ways in which we extend the ministry of Jesus on this earth. So when you see people functioning in their giftedness, when they're working within either their own jobs or at the church and they're using what Christ has naturally given them to bless and serve the church, man, we should adore Jesus who gave them that gift. When someone's gift blesses us, we should see that as Jesus blessing us through them. In verse eight, Paul is citing Psalm 68. And, and this is relating to Jesus' triumphant victory. Now here's what's interesting about this. Psalm 68 is a victory hymn. Historically, it's typical to bring back the spoils of war after a king has won a significant military battle. Here, having triumphed, Jesus that is, over Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave, our Savior gives his congregation spiritually gifted people that they might minister to the church. So the picture is this. Just like in the Psalms, we're reflecting on a king coming back with the spoils of his war. Jesus is coming back with the spoils of his war. And it's you and me gifted to serve the body. In verses 9 and 10, which function kind of like a parenthesis, Paul is speaking of Jesus' descent and ascent. He sees the incarnation, that is his descent, that Jesus came down to earth and his ascension as evidence that Jesus is Savior and he is King. Therefore, Jesus is our ascended Lord. He came all the way down and now he's gone all the way up. Jesus is above all, fills all, and gives gifts to all. And we should marvel at his generosity and his authority. Because of Jesus, each of us has been uniquely gifted, which means that we have diverse responsibilities. Christ gave us gifts so that we would use them. These responsibilities are different for different believers. Specifically, Paul zooms in on leaders and the members. Each of them has the same value to God, but they have different roles. Right? In baseball, pitchers are not known for hitting, and hitters are not known for pitching. In football, you usually don't want the nose guard jumping up to say, I'm going to play quarterback. In basketball, you don't want five seven-footers on the floor at one time. And in my mom's craft room, you don't want me touching anything, right? We all have different abilities. We all have different gifts. And the church needs people playing different positions to be a unified and effective team. We do. Some of us have gifts of encouragement. Some of us have gifts of administration. Some of us have gifts of hospitality and on and on. In verse 11, Paul shows that leaders equip the saints. Paul mentions those in unique positions of leadership within the church. He says apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors or elders and teachers. He focuses on those gifted in articulating the gospel, teaching the word and shepherding God's people. And the title apostle and prophet, they have a broad range of meaning. In one sense, the apostle and prophet were foundational to the church. Apostles, in a technical sense, refers to the 12, right? Defined in this way, we don't have apostles anymore because the 12 aren't still alive. In a general sense, it can refer to a sent one, right? That's what the word apostle means. It means one who is sent. And then the word prophet. Prophets were foretellers, even more than future tellers, uh, future tellers, sorry, 
We see prophets throughout the Old Testament. And they're mentioned in the early church in the New Testament. And used in a technical sense, as with apostles, we don't really have biblical prophets anymore, right? We don't see any more Jeremiah's and Ezekiel's walking around. But in a general sense, prophets are those who apply God's word to God's people. Evangelists, well, that's pretty straightforward. Those are, that's those who are gifted in proclaiming the gospel. Here's the deal, though. All of us are called to evangelize, but some of us are uniquely gifted in this. My brother is so good at this. We would go and play a card game at the comic book store, and we'd be sitting down playing a game, and my brother Daniel would just start talking about Jesus. He would just start giving people stuff that was more valuable to, to him than it was to them, and they would lose their minds. Why would you give me this? He said, well, I, I care way more about you than this game. Why would you say that? Well, because I love Jesus, man. And he would just tell people the gospel left and right. And watching him do that made me realize how timid I can be. Then we get to this term pastor, and it's used here to refer to a ministry in the church. And the related verb here is shepherd, and it appears as well. Pastor is to be understood alongside the term elder and overseer. And here at Quorum Deo, we use these terms interchangeably. The noun here, flock, it refers to the church. So the idea is that there is a pastor who serves the flock. There's this important role of teaching and that pastors are to nurture, defend, protect, know, and sacrifice for the flock. In turn, the New Testament says that they should be honored and respected. And the imagery of the shepherd applied to God in the Old Testament, he is the ultimate shepherd who cared for and protected his people. Leaders in the Old Testament were also oftentimes referred to as shepherds. In the New Testament, Jesus is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. So here's the deal. Jesus is the ultimate senior pastor. The rest of us, any other pastor, is just an under-shepherd. Some take teacher as the same office as pastor. They translate it pastor-teacher. All pastors teach, since technically that's an essential part of pastoral ministry, but not all teachers are pastors. The latter exercise their leadership role by feeding God's flock with his word. So here's the deal. We're going to wrestle with these, right? There's distinctives, there's positions, there's gifts, but one thing is abundantly clear. God has blessed his people throughout redemptive history with gifted proclaimers of his word. Hebrews 13, 7 says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Such leaders are instruments in the Redeemer's hands, used for our sanctification. Their teaching strengthens us. As Paul says, they equip us for ministry. Saints do the work of ministry. What church leaders do is prepare, complete, train, and equip God's people for all ministry. But we all have a work of ministry because we all have spiritual gifts given by Christ. Here's the idea. Often what we think we do, what I think we do in church is this. We hire someone to be a pastor and then we expect them to do all of the ministry and we just kind of show up, get our cup of coffee, sit down in the seat or pew, sing a couple songs, hear a good sermon, and go home. We expect the pastor to be the one to do all the care. We expect the pastor to be the one to do all of the preaching and teaching. We expect the pastor to be the one to do all of the evangelism. And the reality is what the pastor is supposed to be doing is equipping each of us to go and do the work. We need each of us to come hand in hand, arm in arm, to go press into our city with the grace and mercy of Jesus. Imagine the difference between one professional who's paid to try and keep up with all of the needs of the church, which are many, or a 
group of saints all equipped together to go out and take the gospel to the city. What do you think is going to be more effective for the kingdom? I would say the latter for sure. Earlier, Paul says that God saved us for good works. And later he's going to tell us to imitate God and to imitate God's works as we imitate God by working for him. So the pastor works and the people work. The church is to have an every member ministry. So my question for you is, what are you doing with what God has given you? The church will be enriched in worship and mission when every single one of us is serving. When members give, when members work in Coram Deo Kids, when we visit those in need, when we make meals for new parents, when we minister to one another in community groups, that's when the body is edified. That's when the body is blessed. That's when the body is built up. Every member needs to grow up together and use a towel, not wear a bib, right? We should all be eager to serve not immature consumers, but eager servants. This is how Paul Tripp puts it. He says this, your life, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom and progressively changing them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. There is nothing greater to do with your life than to spend it for the glory of the redeeming king and the advancement of his kingdom. So a healthy church is united, diversely gifted, and finally, a healthy church is mature. Look at verses 13 and following. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The result of the church's unity, the result of the church's diversity and giftedness is the church's maturity. Notice how the body metaphor in verse 13, a mature man is contrasted with children in verse 14. Paul wants us to grow up. He wants us to grow up. Notice also that while we do the work of ministry, right, verse 12, we grow into maturity. We tend to think that we must be totally mature to serve in the church, right? If I'm going to do ministry, if I'm going to get involved, if I'm going to serve, I got to be more put together. Man, I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. And listen, while we need to be careful, certainly, to not appoint leaders too quickly, we've got to recognize that spiritual growth is not merely cerebral. Right? You can't just read enough books, get enough knowledge, and then suddenly you're ready to go. No, service is a means of growth into maturity. Paul gives us four traits of a spiritually mature person. First, maturity involves Christ-likeness. The ultimate picture of maturity is Christ. It says a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Christ's fullness is an expression of completion, of perfection. And this makes obvious sense, right? The goal for us is to be like Jesus. 
we should long for the character qualities that Paul mentions in verses 2 and 3 to be present in our lives, and we should long for maturity individually and corporately. Second, maturity involves doctrinal stability. Maturity involves doctrinal stability. Paul mentions the need to grow in our knowledge of truth. In verse 13, he mentions growth in the unity of the faith, the body of doctrine and the knowledge of God's son, which involves both the intellect and the heart, the head and the heart. In verse 14, he says, we should no longer be little children thrown around by every wind of doctrine. Listen, y'all, kids are gullible. They are easily deceived. That's why there's so much fun to prank. It's just true, right? But false teachers, what they do is they creep in and they toss the gullible around. They prey on the gullible, saying things like, well, all religions are the same. If you're a good person, you're going to go to heaven. The Bible, it's just another book among many religious books. Believe in the idea of resurrection, but not an actual bodily resurrection. No, no, children must be taught as they grow up. Listen, I'm not going to say to my daughter, hey, you know what, tonight, go get your friends and you guys can just drive to the gathering. No, she's six. I'm not going to let her drive a car. She's got to learn. She's got to be taught. She's got to grow. And so do we as believers. We enter the Christian life as babies, but we are to grow through the word and become disciple-making teachers. Third, maturity involves truth joined with love. God means for Christians to present the truth to others, and it should always be presented in love. We must, we have to hold the truth high. And Christians must remember the centrality of love. Maturity involves a truth-telling, truth-maintaining, truth-doing love. I pray that folks say about Coram Deo, man, they teach the Bible and they teach it faithfully. But I also hope they say they love each other like family and they love their neighbors as themselves. If people don't agree with our doctrine, I pray that they will see that we love them. So are we known for truth and love, right? Are we known personally for truth and love in our lives? And then fourth, maturity involves contribution. Maturity involves contribution. Paul returns to this idea of the body as a metaphor, where every member is a limb in Christ's body. And because you are a body part, you are important. You are we need one another. Every member is to contribute. Using what he or she has, our ultimate need is Jesus. We grow up into him. We are dependent on Christ who is the head and source of the church. But we are also members of the body and we are also dependent on one another. Right? Verse 16, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As we grow into Christ, as we use our gift in love, our body becomes healthy. What an unspeakable privilege it is to be united to Jesus and to one another. It's, it's wise and good to be health conscious, right? My wife's not wrong for wanting me to eat kale, even though it's bitter and weird and I don't understand it, right? She loves me and she wants me to be healthy. That's wise and good. But we should be even more so concerned about the health of the body of Jesus. May Coram Deo be marked by unity, by diversity, and by an ever-increasing maturity. As I was writing this sermon, I kept trying to think of, man, what could I like talk about to help people? And I kept trying to think of stories from my own life and service. And I realized, man, nobody's going to relate to me. Obviously, I've given myself over to full-time ministry for the bulk of my adult life, 
right? I went to Bible college. My first job was serving as a pastor in a church. It's just like, that's not relatable. And then it clicked. I had a friend in Missouri and his name was Nathan. And the thing I love about Nathan is that he was kind of just seemingly forgettable. (laughs) That sounds mean, but it's the truth. Nathan worked a nine to five. He was a manager of a bakery and had three amazing kids and a wife and just showed up and was faithful. But here's the thing that blew my mind about Nathan. Nathan gave his life for Jesus. He saw his home not as a place of refuge and quiet just for himself, but as a place to use for people. And so he just started giving his home over to people. He saw his giftedness, not necessarily as a teacher, as someone who would get up and preach on a Sunday morning, but as someone who would be there and be faithful. Plug me in wherever you need me. And so he would serve in faithful ways. He would show up and do security on Sundays, and we would just see him there constantly serving, always working. His wife, Sarah, was the same way, just loving faithfully, serving faithfully. And it was such a blessing to my wife and I. One of the things that they decided to do was they had this large home with a lot of acreage behind it. And so when the church was trying to figure out where we're we gonna do our retreat, they said, why don't you just use our house? And they would open their home up. When there were weekends where it was, hey, we should get together. We should try and figure out where we can get together and have friends and, and people come together. They'd say, why don't you use our house? When we would have projects show up at the church on Sundays, when we got a new space gifted to us, an old church building, Nathan was there swinging a hammer, holding a brush, working constantly. Because the reality was, Nathan didn't look at his life and say, here are the things I can't do. He looked at his life and who God made him to be and said, here are the things I can do. Use me, Lord. He made a deep impact on my, on my life, on my wife's life. And even when we went back to Missouri last year to visit briefly, They hosted a huge party and welcomed us. These are people, again, with no seemingly deep, important, what we would call big gift in the church. But they were willing and faithful. And because of that, they blessed so many. I think many of us have this mentality that when we hear things like this, we're like, okay, yeah, strive for unity, strive for maturity. But when we talk about diversity of giftedness, we just kind of, we kind of just check out a little bit. And we think, I can't really do all these things that other people can do. But the reality is you can do exactly what Christ has made you to do. And we need that desperately. So whatever that may be, whatever your giftedness is, whatever you love to do, however you may love to serve, even if it may seem on the surface like it doesn't fit, I promise you it can and does. If your giftedness is in something that you think, you know, I have this idea. I don't know if it's crazy. It's not. Man, talk to us. Let's, let's dream together. Let's scheme together how we might bless and serve Morganton and one another with the giftedness that we have. Paul's teaching, it serves as kind of a spiritual checkup for us in these vital areas. So you and I, we've got to make the necessary changes with the Spirit's help. So tonight as we close, man, would you just consider, God, who have you made me to be? Where have I not been pursuing unity? Where have I cared far more about myself, my preferences, the things that I want to do than what you would have. Think about the areas in your life where you have not considered using your giftedness, but instead you've thought either that you were insignificant or that you just don't have the time. And then finally, where are the areas that you need to grow into spiritual maturity? Where are the areas where you look at your life and see, man, I need to grow. I need more of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful that you've given us this amazing, wonderful, beautiful hope in the gospel. We're thankful, God, that every week we're reminded of this joy. We're reminded of this truth that you have given us hope beyond hope. 
and joy beyond joy, that you've called us to be united in Jesus, that you've called us, Lord, with a unique grace given to us, a unique gift given to each of us. Father, we pray that we would honor you by serving, by seeking to use our own abilities, by seeking to use the gifts that you've given us. And God, I pray that you would continue to grow us into maturity, that we would be men and women who are shaped, yes, by our diversity and unity, but also by our maturity as we fall more deeply in love with you than the things of this world. We're so grateful for the good news of the gospel. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.